0: Hey, Reset listeners, I've got something super special for you. So, it's been a year of us all being stuck inside, and I think it is not a better time to reset, which is why I am so excited to announce a partnership with the Miraval Berkshires, which is a -a one-of-a-kind spot in Lenox, Massachusetts. Basically, we're launching the Reset Weekend. April 30th to May 2nd, we're creating an amazing weekend where you can go... Relax, get spa treatments, hike, sit by the pool, get every massage you could ever dream of in a one of a kind, amazing space. I had the honor of going to this space back last summer and it fueled my soul. And I think once you spend a weekend at Miraval, you're going to love it. So I'd love for you to join me on April 30th to May the 2nd for a reset weekend. Details are in the show notes and come on through and check out Miraval Broekshire's. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Mugniel, CEO of the Experience Agency, D-Flash. Each episode, I bring an amazing new business leader who's doing some game-changing work. And- this episode is no different. I am so excited to have Lisa Kahn, who's the co-founder and COO of Icebreaker, which is an incredible um, video platform for uh, networking and speed networking that I've had that awesome pleasure of working on a number of times, and it's been a delight. Um, it's gonna be a great conversation about how we are all adapting in the midst of COVID and companies growing and finding their niche. It's gonna be a great conversation. Take a listen. Hey, Lisa. Hello. How's it going? It's good. You know, it's a good, it's a good Wednesday. It's a good Wednesday. I would say it's a good Wednesday. It's a good Friday. It's a good Wednesday. That's right. Um, and we are recording now um, after we now know that we'll have a new president. Thank the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Hallelujah. Um, and even though it's now a new and brighter day, the podcast still stays the same. So, Lisa, what was your first job?
1: i had a lot of jobs as a kid, like not job <laughs> jobs, but I helped my parents with things. So I'll tell you my first set of responsibilities and then I'll tell you my first paid job. So my dad was a, he's retired now, but he was a surgeon. And he and my mom would organize these like seminars. My mom was a sort of public speaker uh, in the seventies and she would organize these like self-help new agey seminars. And so she brought that as a marketing technique to my dad's business. And so when I was a kid, I would help organize the materials and I would get very obsessed with the process around putting together the folders and making sure everything was really efficient. I learned the concept of assembly lines and I was really interested in efficiency. So that was something I did for years and years and years and and attended his seminars and it was really fun. Um, But my first (laughs) paid job was when I was in high school. I was a barista at a coffee shop um, called the Coffee Pub in Laguna Beach, which is my hometown. And it was a totally hilarious crew of people, just unbelievable characters, the regulars, the staff. And I, I wrote a bunch of short stories when I was in high school about the experience.
0: <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, was there anything that was like most that really stuck out to you?
1: Okay, this is maybe not the most PC story, but I'll tell you. The, there was a guy named William who worked at the coffee shop with me and he decided to sell what I believed at the time were herbal cigarettes. And the owner of the coffee shop who was this Korean woman, um, agreed. She said, cool, you can sell herbal cigarettes. I found out, or I realized years later, they were a very specific kind of herbal cigarette that was sold out of this coffee shop. I hope I don't get it in oh. trouble. Uh, but it was oh. really, really just a classic sort of hippie beach town energy where you could buy a coffee and a croissant and then an herbal cigarette, if you know what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> hey, listen, you know, but isn't, aren't herbal cigarettes now legal in
1: California? Yeah, but this was a time, this was, you know, 17 years ago. Okay. So was he totally okay? And I I honestly was so naive. I had no idea. And you were just like, oh,
0: yeah. But yeah, you, I was
1: like, like smoking is bad. It's bad for your lungs. Why would you buy that? Okay. Like, okay. Yeah,
0: we get you.
1: Yeah. Lesson, lessons learned. Lessons learned. Okay. You know, so, that guy, I'm pretty sure, is a pharmacist now. So, he uh, always wanted to help people, the person that sold the, the herbal cigarettes see
0: he cared about the people
1: he cared he He found his path he found his passion early on
0: you all find your passion and and then you have to just kind of go with it speaking of which so you go from working in this really um innovative (laughs) absolutely uh, a coffee shop to now found being a co-founder of icebreaker like what was that journey like because I feel like there's some stops along the way before we get there
1: Oh, there are a lot of stops, a lot of stops. I think mean, the first big stop was in 2007 when I was in college in Washington Square Park, when I saw uh, then-Senator uh, Barack Obama speak. And my grandmother, my dad's mother, was an activist during the civil rights era. And so growing up, I always heard these incredible stories of what people can do when they come together to make change. And the interesting thing about her story is so she was someone who was both Kind of a big dreamer, but she was also incredibly disciplined and very practical. So she wouldn't just tell me about the lofty things that can happen. She would talk about the tactics and how hard, you know, how hardworking you had to be in order to make change happen. And it sort of, you know, resonated with the little girl that was obsessed with the assembly line, putting together, a folders for my dad's seminars. And so she had long passed uh, by 2007, and I remember standing in Washington Square Park and seeing him speak. And I hadn't at that time been particularly inspired by politics. Um, But watching him speak surrounded by people of every race and gender and age was just so, 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 so moving that I knew I needed to be part of it. And so I spent the first chunk of my career with sort of a theory of change or a mission statement, which was, if you organize people to elect good candidates, then good things will happen. They'll represent us well. Uh, And so I worked on a bunch of political campaigns uh, through the spring of then 2013. Uh-huh,
0: um, and uh I feel like you might have known some folks along the way who were um pretty successful in their local campaigns.
1: I did, yeah, I got to work uh help elect and reelect Barack Obama, um a congressional candidate who won named Janice Hahn in Los Angeles, and then I was the campaign manager for a city council campaign. Uh, in Los Angeles, uh, a guy named Mike Bonin, who's been city councilor now for two terms, he might be on his third term now, and he was running for the first time when I was his campaign manager. And um, you know, it was really interesting because the end of 2012, we had just had this incredible victory with President Obama's reelection, which didn't feel at the time uh, inevitable. Now it sort of seems like it was, but it didn't feel that way. It was actually a really, really close race at the time, and that was when Sandy Hook happened. Um, and, uh, I remember being, having just come back from Florida, which is where I, I was running, um, a region for, for president Obama then, and just watching the news and watching just the devastating faces of children and parents who were affected by the, the Sandy Hook shooting, but having this mission statement that, you know, if we elect good people, good things will happen. And so I sort of believe that, well, this will be a great victory because gun legislation will take place and this won't be for naught. Um, And then in 2013, gun legislation failed, didn't pass in the Senate despite 93% or whatever the numbers were of Americans supporting it. And that was another sort of big wake up call for me after spending several years electing candidates, which was, okay, there's a lot that happens in between elections in the form of advocacy when most people aren't paying attention. And at that time, tech, the sort of tech industry was just sort of starting to flex its power and so i had this sort of new theory of change which was let's organize the tech community and use technology to enable everyone to have a meaningful voice in politics and i at that time joined an organization that was founded by mark zuckerberg called forward us um, with the mandate of sort of organizing the tech community building meaningful technology and advocating for immigration reform was the big issue we were working on in the spring of 2013 so i was there for about two and a half years Awesome, and so what prompts you to, after being in, in
0: politics and in the, the nitty gritty of all of that, to then want to start a tech company?
1: Yeah, so I had I was very lucky. You know, I think I I talked to a lot of people who have spent their career in politics who are interested in doing something different, entering into the business world, entering into the tech world, and just aren't sure what they can offer and what value they can add. I was really lucky to be a part of this organization where I was the national organizing director. So I got to bring the community organizing lens, but we had a full tech team and I got to work really, really closely with you know, I remember like learning what a PM was, what a product manager was, and just being so amazed by this woman, Amy, who was our first PM and the incredible things that she could organize and make happen. We had incredible product people, incredible engineers, incredible designers, and we built amazing technology, uh, not for profit, but really for sort of a mission perspective. And at the time, so this was now 2015. At the time I had this sort of new theory of change, which was if we can sort of use machine learning and social listening and AI to make sense of the issues that people care about as expressed in their own voices on social media, then we can have, we don't need polling and we can sort of have a more accountable government. It's so interesting because, you know, here we are 2020, once again, in different ways than 2016, the polling really told us sort of the wrong story of what was going to happen in this election. It obviously correctly predicted the outcome, but uh, was pretty wrong in a lot of states. Um, but in 2015, I sort of had this idea, what if we replace polling? And even if we replace advocacy with this sort of dashboard of information of what the public cares about. And so I went to MIT for business school with the sort of goal of building I didn't know if it was a company I'd never worked with money before, like I'd never had revenue be a priority, Um, but to sort of build something that could change the world in this meaningful way, which I think a lot of people in technology care about. And while I was at MIT, I also joined the MIT Media Lab. Um, One lab there is called the Lab for Social Machines. I was a researcher there for my two years in business school, and we had access to the full Twitter firehose. So every Twitter- Oh, wow. It was incredible, the only research lab in the world. Um, And the researchers there were mostly data scientists focused in natural language processing and machine learning. And my sort of dream of what I wanted to build came to life in this research lab where we built a project called the Electome, which was sort of analyzing and classifying Twitter data about the 2016 election by issues and while i was there working on this we, we partnered with a bunch of news organizations to publish our insights and a bunch of things that i think are still interesting today one that i'll just share is that we did a we did a, a story with the washington post in Let's see, it must have been March of 2016. And we wanted to compare and contrast polling, public opinion polling, with what people on Twitter were saying. And so we took the same two-week period where a poll was run, and we were looking at the data. And we looked at what issues do people say are important to them in the poll, and what issues are people tweeting about regularly. And And it was just totally different things. And it was interesting then, because it wasn't to say polling is wrong and we should analyze Twitter or the other way around, Mm-hmm. The fact that there are these sort of two different ways of listening to what people care about was really fascinating. and right. so, You know, here we are, you know, years later that this is still an issue that we need to revolutionize. But the real kind of insight from my research in 2016 and 2017 was that we had a real polarization problem um, mm-hmm. that uh, On Twitter, in particular, in the 2016 election, Trump supporters and Clinton supporters lived in completely different universes and information was just not entering either ecosystem. Um, The leaders that they followed, even the events that each group thought was were happening in a particular day were completely different uh, based off of which political tribe you were part of. And so I became really obsessed with solving this problem and I was hired by Facebook to lead Facebook's work on polarization uh, in 2017 um, to sort of help them understand how its current design of news, newsfeed, and groups features at the platform were contributing to or uh, helping to address extremism and polarization. And it was there that I became more interested in business um, because, uh, you know, without getting into sort of all the details of Facebook's specific circumstances. The business decisions that a you know, college student made uh, 15 years prior to the 2016 presidential election, or I guess the business was really not formed for a couple of years after that, uh, had a huge impact on uh, the problems that we needed to then solve um, that were really affecting, affecting the globe. And I also became really obsessed with the rise of digital communities, uh, which fascinatingly on Facebook was sort of the one place where people were having healthy, civil discourse across ideological difference. It was sort of the tribes that I saw on Twitter uh, were able to sort of be um, penetrated through these like niche Facebook groups, whether it was a community of people who were supporting each other to breastfeed or people with a really rare disease or people who love this certain brand of sneaker. Those were the places where there was incredible cross cutting interaction across uh, traditional lines of difference. And after two years at Facebook, working on this problem, working with lots of academics and peace builders and extremists who had left extreme communities they were a part of and could help us make sense of the psychology behind belonging. I decided that that you know the existing platforms weren't quite right, and that I wanted to start my own um, mm-hmm. in partnership with my two co-founders, uh, with sort of the principles of humanization and ethical design embedded from day one uh, in the design of the of the technology, and that's what brought us Icebreaker.
0: Awesome! And tell us all about Icebreaker now.
1: Yeah, so we're a new kind of online event. And um, we're designed to give people a sense of togetherness online that we typically only feel in person. And our mission is really a world without isolation, um, where people feel really deeply connected to the people that matter to them. Uh, We started the company before COVID. We saw that, you know, this, when you look at sort of the rise in polarization and extremism and the lack of trust in institutions and rise in loneliness and addiction, it actually all corresponds to a decline in community. And so when we launched the company, we really wanted to focus on meaningful communities and helping people have real conversations within members of of, uh, of the communities that matter to them. We decided ourselves to be remote when we started the company, um, in part because we wanted to attract the best talent, in part because the three of us lived in different places and wanted to live in different places. And pretty early on, we started to use Icebreaker to sort of build culture and celebrate and get to know each other as human beings as a remote team. And that became really, really essential as we grew. Of course, March of this year, COVID happens or at least COVID hits the US it hit other places obviously prior to that. And suddenly everyone is a remote team. And so we were very, it was just despite being a horrible, horrible tragedy, very sort of good timing for us because we happened to be there with a solution that has been incredibly helpful for universities, for grassroots organizations, and probably most of all for companies that are suddenly remote um, and need to build community and culture. And then in June, when there was sort of this When George Floyd happened and Black Lives Matter protests became even more prominent, a lot of companies, unfortunately for the first time, but fortunately at all, uh, decided they also wanted to start having conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion and had no idea where to start. And we've also been able to contribute a lot um, to to team cultures in that capacity.
0: Awesome. That's a mouthful. Um, (laughs) um, Thank you for telling that incredible story because I think it's funny that like, you know, you never know how what you're building will be right for that right particular moment where it all kind of makes sense. And obviously, we could never have predicted having a global pandemic that would force everybody to be at home and um, be in front of their computers. But here, you guys were with a solution that not only was easy to use but made great sense. You know, like you know, when we used uh, Icebreaker for our Black Female Founders event a couple weeks ago, the the, be- the best feedback that we got was that like thank you for giving me a chance to meet other people because like i don't i don't get a chance to see new folks like i know my coworkers i see my family and that's about it and so much and you know that lack of community definitely leads to like people in isolation which leads to a whole host of mental health issues and so having a platform that enables people to get a chance to meet other folks is just so necessary
1: Totally. And the stories that we hear of people feeling less isolated have been really, really exciting and really, really, really inspiring. And it might even be that you work with a group of people every day who you think you know, but you've never gotten to know at a deeper level. And when you don't know each other at a deeper level, you don't really feel safe saying, hey, I'm actually feeling really depressed. Or, hey, my uh, partner is sick with COVID and it's going to impact how I show up today. When you sort of have real intimate connections with people whether they're people you don't know or people that you think you know but you don't really know um it allows you to be more vulnerable and more honest and ask for what you need and then get that support and sense of belonging that you need yeah and i think that's i think one of the things that's been
0: sort of a probably a good outgrowth of this is that the one the focus on mental health has um expanded in, in innumerable ways Yeah. and but then there's also like the stigma has you know not completely gone away but definitely a lot of those walls have been broken down where folks are much more apt to say listen I'm taking mental health day today like this is i just cannot do it or today's gonna be the day or you just sort of self let the off yourself out whereby like i'm off today and yeah, that's it and, and i will happily watch netflix all day long and that's what we're gonna do here
1: yeah, just to, um, just to sort of like mentally and emotionally survive,
0: um, and because like are like, oh, everything's the same. You're working from like no, you're working from home during the middle of a pandemic. That's not working from home, right? Um, there is something outside that could potentially kill you. It's like it is the monster movie, uh, and I think having having ways where folks can have that level of vulnerability and honesty um, is so key right now because. It, it's stressful. It's scary. We um, you, you turn on the news, you hear how many th- tens of thousands of cases. You see the staggering, heartbreaking number of people who have lost their lives, um, and then yeah. you just realize that mix it all together, and you add in you know obviously a summer of racial unrest. where like you know we find we're finally grappling with like the big scary thing that's always been there, yeah. but folks have tried to put in the corner where it's like well actually you know here's why that offends me. Um, right. And this isn't easy, um, being a person of color in a company that's like 95% white. Like it, uh, so it is so very necessary to have these conversations and have people feel like they can be comfortable and not y'all, you know, get the side eye from folks.
1: Yeah, and for that emotional burden and that emotional work to start to be shared a little bit between members of a team or members of a community you know, we, uh, it's, we, we, one of the icebreaker kind of conversation templates that we offer to folks was written by this awesome woman named Dr. Aquila Kadeh, who's, uh, I love that she identifies as the Olivia Pope of workplace diversity. She's just an incredible, <laughs> super educated, knows her stuff. And there's one question that is in one of the conversation templates that she's designed for us, which is, um, when did you first learn about the concept of race? Like, when did you learn that you are white or not white? And you know, uh, there's a, there were a lot of people that I would participate in this conversation with who it was the first, reading that question and talking to me in that conversation was the first time I'd ever thought about it. And, uh, you know, it gives me chills because it's what a privilege, what a luxury to never go through life being aware of really thinking about race or thinking about your own race. Um, and I think seeing white people in particular start to do some of the work this summer um, has been really, really important and necessary and obviously not enough
0: um, <laughs> Oh God! To start, yes.
1: to start to have these conversations and start to do the work in sort of like private, quiet spaces has been really cool for me to see. Like I've had a lot of friends that have started to read the literature and reach out saying, I think I had a white fragility moment. And I'm like, you probably did. Like, let's talk about it, what happened? And, you know, um, to sort of start to share the burden of thinking about these issues and bringing up these issues and having these conversations is so, important and so encouraging
0: yeah because at the end of the day it's a privilege to be able to do the reading
1: it's a privilege and
0: not to thing. yes <laughs> absolutely um and i think you know now that we've hit this moment whereby it's funny like we had this whole summer of this and everyone's like okay i'm reading white fragility i'm like i'm, I'm gonna do all the anti-racism stuff and then we see the election and you're like oh so y'all just double down on this <laughs> like yeah, I know. um so that that is you know I think for us, it's it is a worrisome moment. Yeah. Um, but I do think that it also is hopefully, and things I've been seeing are redoubling some efforts from more white folks to be like, we have to go get our own Karens. Like, I, like this is um, we have to we have to really hammer home that this is not acceptable, and that like this isn't about you losing something because some people are going to get equality. You're there's no way you're going to be. Um, oppressed uh and that's what we and we hope for and we hope for a better day i mean like you know black people voted these numbers because we hope to make this world a better place for our own survival um we're betting on the success of this country and we it's like how do we get more white people to be like bet on the success of this country and the success of others um and that will
1: help yeah and i think i think there's sort of like another angle to it which is interesting to me around, you know, one of the sort of challenges in society right now is that there's been this incredible flattening of individual identity. So if you're not a part of a lot of communities, there's only a few ways in which you identify. And when you only have a few identities that are important to you, any threat or perceived threat to any one of those identities feels like a threat to your very existence. And so I've been thinking a lot, especially looking at some of the data around this election, Uh, you know, in contrast to what appeared to be an awakening this summer and, and, and that not being consistent, I've been thinking about, like, what does the identity of whiteness mean for a lot of Americans? And what does it mean to feel like there is a perceived attack on your identity? Perceived is the operative word here, just to be very clear. And how might we help folks form other identities that make it feel less scary for them, you know and i and i think that what tr- one of the most dangerous things that the trump administration has done and what trump himself has done is associate um a a whole, a whole bundle of sort of communities and a whole bundle of sort of dimensions of belonging in a in a sort of dog whistle way with this idea of whiteness and like what whiteness means and what it means to be a white person and um you know and i wonder for and i think that i have maybe too much you know empathy isn't quite the right word but uh concern for the sort of uneducated white voter that voted for Trump. Like I, it feels, it feels cult level brainwashing. Like something is just, doesn't make any damn sense. And I wonder what it might look like to help folks like that see themselves as more than just a white man or as a white woman um, and like form other dimensions of identity, if that will help kind of create more openness or willingness to really engage with anti-racism and accept the institutional racism and white supremacy that has been embedded in our country's history since literally day one. Um, you know, I don't know, there's there's, there's a, it's a, we have a big problem, you know, even though Biden won, we have sort of a big problem to face when it comes to, I think, identity and race and what Donald Trump has done to sort of crystallize, crystallize something that has been long part of our, of our country.
0: Well, yeah, I think it's, it's one of those things where, you know, he's just a manifestation of what it, it all is in a human form. You know, this this goes back to the 80s when you've got, you know, welfare queens with Ronald Reagan. You know, I saw something that was pretty interesting. It's like, this is 40 years of, you know, Fox News, Newt Gingrich, um, think tanks telling you about like, all these ridiculous studies that are clearly racially motivated. Um, and feeding that into also communities who did not have the education to understand the context and nuance. It's like, there's a reason why he keeps winning non-cause educated people. Um, And that's not a slight on people with different types of education experiences, but if you can force a crowd and feed a crowd, that much information over the period of forty years that like you know you know you know you're a blue state liberal because you have a master's degree no mm-hmm. um, then you can of course convince that this highly educated Negro black man Barack Obama or that uppity black woman Kamala Harris <laughs> is, 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 gonna, is gonna take something away from you and you know that's gonna that's the problem and I think you know blaming Trump is obviously a thing that we have to do but we also have to look back at the structures that, foster that environment to come from if you tell folks that like you know welfare queens are, li- are driving cadillacs and fur coats in the hood when the biggest welfare queens are people who own farms like, right? Yeah. Like, in actuality then you, this is what ends up happening um so i think it it is something to be like you know i i think the bigger problem is the quiet acquiescent races Mm-hmm. Um, I, there was a story yesterday about a woman who has literally the world at her fingertips. Like, you know, her husband's a former Google executive, ran it was running like some really well-known school, and like, in, I think in Menlo Park. And she just like went on this rant about Kamala with using the most vulgar language. And you're like, what? What are you doing? Like, why in the world? What did she do to you? who you have everything in this life That for you to think that she is there because she slept her way to the top. Really? Ugh. Uh, so like, you know, and like, obviously our, our husband had to quit his, losers quit his job and she's getting the appropriate level of comeuppance. But like, right. you know, there is this through line of this. I'm better than you all. And mm-hmm. there is no way that you all can be better unless Something was rigged, and where did that come from? Well, decades of that being drilled into people's heads across every spectrum. Um, so it'll be fascinating to see. There is no way of putting the genie back in the bottle. Um, right. Right. Maybe just get, having the genie get a new, just get, having the genie say something new is probably what's going to have to ha- have happen, or see the or see the, the economic despair that you have
1: if you don't change the way you do things. We'll see. Well, see, I mean, it, it's uh, one of the things that I that I struggle with is, you know, to, to sort of, there's lots of different kind of lines of division that we're talking about. And one is obviously red-blue. And um, one of the things that I sort of personally struggle with is I've been a Democrat my whole life. And I, when I was old enough to sort of understand my own political beliefs, I continued to be a Democrat. I've worked for Democratic candidates and causes. I align deeply with the Democratic Party. Um, and you know when you think about sort of like this idea of polarization, which I've talked a lot about, I've studied a lot, comes up a lot. Polarization is sort of defined as uh, extreme ideas towards the you know the sort of poles, right? Like, and you know, there's a lot of sort of um literature and historical moments where you actually need to be polarized in order to have important moments of civic engagement. You know, if people weren't polarized during the civil rights movement, for example, there would right. not have been. Massive action. If we weren't polarized during the women's march, it wouldn't have happened. If we weren't polarized today, we wouldn't have had record turnout. Um, and Joe Biden wouldn't have received more votes than any other presidential candidate in history. And so I sort of am personally struggling with how do I both maintain my own personal political ideology and hold the line of what is unacceptable beliefs, behaviors. And opinions from the other side, while also having some willingness and desire and appetite and need to find, you know, quote unquote common ground, or at least have empathy or compassion for a group of Americans that exist. And in order for our democracy to function, we sort of need to work with. And you know, it's it's something that I, especially in this moment where you know, I looked at this with Twitter data in 2016, there were different universes, but at least people agreed on the outcome of the election. You know, here we are, you watch MSNBC, and it's all about, you know, Biden's transition team, and who his cabinet appointees might be, and then you turn on Fox News, and it's all about Pompeo saying that we're going to have a peaceful transition into the Trump administration. It's like, that is not sustainable. So, so you know, one thing I'm just sort of thinking about, and I'm curious how, how you think about this, is how do I, as a Democrat and a person who has opinions that I believe are being sort of violated and, you know, also have some willingness to bridge, bridge the increasingly widening gap between us.
0: Well, you know, I, I just think, you know, the gap is going to be the gap and, you know, that might have to be the thing that has to happen or where we have to drag you all along picking and screaming. Um, There was a great um, meme I saw today about you know and this guy was like listen the reason why you know this is the the problem is that like you were never threatened your way of life is never really threatened if you were like a white Trump supporter like no one was going to tell you that yeah okay you, you okay you're gonna lose your gun but your life wasn't threatened and I think that you know as opposed to you know, obviously, people of color. Where it's like, no, we had to vote in record numbers because we saw where this was going. This was clearly going towards authoritarianism, and like that Handmaid's Tale was going to become, a, you know, a documentary. Um, and for the and for the other for the other side, it's like, it's not even a matter of having empathy for you guys. It's like, I at this particular moment, like, you have to have truth and reconciliation. And I think the problem is that we've never had that here. And I, my hope with Biden is that we actually get to mm-hmm. the point. Like um, Angela Merkel had a really great um, four-minute um, talk earlier this week about the special relationship between the U.S. and Germany, and she started off by talking about Germany's original sin of the Holocaust mm-hmm. and how it is a national shame, and it is it is a thing that we have fought against to, you know, to acknowledge, realize, and make sure that it never happens again. And the special relationship here in the U.S. is that, you know, they've helped us hold that line. The thing that's never happened here in the U.S. is we've never had a president say, yeah, slavery, really bad, really Mm -hmm. terrible. You know what we need to do? Apologize for it. Mm -hmm. You know what those Confederate flags? Mm -hmm. Burn them all. Like, that is where we have to be honest. And I think the problem is that, like, these folks have been lied to for 50, 60, 70 years. And if we can begin to serve, to serve the truth, you know, that's how you pull them along. It's like, no, listen, like, your Confederate flag meant you were trying to kill somebody. So, right. and like, and we have to say that out loud. We can't sort of dance around it and say it was about, you know, states' rights and all this other stuff. It's like, no this was a message of hate and you have, cause we we're dealing with an uneducated populace because they've been forced for a bunch of trash. Right. Um, and so if we can honestly say to people that like, this is actually what happened here, doesn't mean we're gonna convert every single person who's run on that side, but I do think if we can confront our previous ills and honestly, it takes a white man to do this cause Barack yeah. Obama could never say this, um, like, uh, who is of a certain age, who was in this country when there w- it was a completely different neck of the woods. So him being in the '70s is helpful to fully say what that meant and say that Jim Crow was horrible and to say those Confederate monuments or um, like honestly reconcile with the fact that things were here um, were so terrible. Then I think we can begin to sort of begin the begin the deprogramming. And, you know, you know, shutting off the mics of some of these idiots is like, cool. I still have my Michael Bloomberg Please by Fox bucket. Uh, because like, if you keep, this is what you know, bad things lead to. This. this is how bad things happen. Um, like remember, we, the reason you got Trump was 10 years of seeing him on TV being mean to people.
1: Right.
0: So you made it okay. So him being mean to people in in the, in the primaries was okay. Him being mean to people with hillary was okay him calling the people sleepy joe became okay because 10 years prior you drove it into his head but like that's how you treat people mm-hmm. so what if we had a way of um flipping this script and like we're gonna confront our most terrible ills and try and find a pathway to some goodness mm-hmm. um, and through truth and reconciliation not dog whistles not bullshit but like here's the story mm-hmm. uh, for those of you that don't know.
1: So, I mean, that's, that's really, it's a, a really encouraging vision. It's an encouraging path forward. It's interesting because Biden's been talking a lot about the word unity and it hasn't sat right with me because it feels for, too forgiving or something, mm-hmm. um, Same. you know, and what, and, and it's interesting because then you look at, you know, like Megan Kelly, who I don't know what she's doing, but she's, she's sort of criticizing Democrats forever calling Trump supporters bigots and racists and xenophobes. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, but I, I, think what you're describing is not exactly unity. It's it used the word deprogramming. And I think that's the right framework to be thinking about how do we replace brainwashing with correct information that isn't that may be uncomfortable for people to face, but so be it. It's been uncomfortable for people to live. Um, and uh you know I, I don't know and i and i and i appreciate what you're saying about joe biden with his age and his the body that he is in and even the resilience that he exhibits might be the only person that can get through to folks over the next 4 years
0: yeah i i you know look you have to remain hopeful i mean look to to. to be a black person in america is of resistance yeah Um, because you, you know, don't think it was Doc Rivers who said like only black people love this country and don't, and don't, and the country doesn't love it back. And so if we can do that and we can confront and acknowledge the BS has happened in this country and still believe we can do something to make it better, then there is, there is a there, there is no reason that white folks who are. Uh, on the other side, can't find their way as well. Again, we're never going to get all of them because you're right. Polarization is necessary and uh, is kind of a, is a necessary thing, and you need that conflict. Um, but I do think if we can try, if mm-hmm. um, okay, we can, we can get back ten percent in four years, and then fifteen,
1: mm-hmm. and twenty,
0: mm-hmm. and you know, and also they're old and dying off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like um you know the country's getting younger and younger and younger then maybe um we can we can begin anew but it is a it is a crapshoot um a lot lot, it's 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 financially beneficial for lots of certain people to keep the keep the rage going to keep feeding the feeding the rage so we shall see we shall see we shall see Uh, so looking back on all the kind of really amazing stuff that you've done, what do you think you'd tell 21 year old Lisa?
1: I, I have struggled with perfectionism my whole life, which has caused workaholism and anxiety and I still, it's something that I deal with. And I think I would tell myself that you really, really, really don't have to be perfect. It's really okay to make mistakes and that it is the mistakes and the things that don't quite, don't go quite as you planned that actually result in all the goodness. Um, I think that my sort of secret weapon throughout my career, which I attribute to my mother, who's a therapist, has been self-awareness. Really knowing my strengths, my weaknesses, what environments I work well and what environments just don't bring out the best in me, what people I connect with, what people just aren't totally my type. And, um, you know, and, I, and I wish that I understood when I was 21 that all of my twenties would just be about giving myself more data about myself. That good experience, bad experience, you know, good person, good relationship, bad relationship, all the sort of ups and downs of life were going to fuel my self-awareness and my knowledge of what kind of company I want to start and how I want to be better and who I want to hire and what partner I want to get married to and where I want to live. Um, and that the mistakes and the roadblocks and the bumps in the road get you there. And there is no, either there is no perfection or that is perfection, just sort of knowing yourself. Um and I wish I had a better understanding of that when I was when I was twenty one because I, I was a pretty anxious, uh type A person who felt like I had to do it all perfectly. Who, who isn't? <laughs> I think some people are. I meet people and I'm like, are you? How's your stress? I'm like oh I don't I don't feel stress. I'm like what? Okay, cool, good for you. Are yeah, you sure? You're not a bot.
0: Okay, you're not human. <laughs> Oh, it's, 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 it's just like, no, I think that's great. I think that the perfectionism is also a big problem that a lot of women face and you're like, um, and I think it's something where we have to like, um, acknowledge and be like, it is okay to be not okay. And yes. that solves a ton of problems. If we just kind of come from it from that place, it's totally. Okay. Not be okay. It's all right. Like and not everything will be solved by the time you're 30. Um, right. like I, like, I continue to believe that, like, you know, 30 to like, no, I turned 40 in February. And, like, you know, this past decade has changed my life more than even, like, from like 35 to 40, has changed my life more than, and I'm the person I'm, I'm supposed to be now. Um, so, like, and you never know what it's going to take you, but like, I'm so much happier now than I was when I turned 30. Mm. Uh, even though I'm doing something I would never a million years have imagined that I'd be doing, if you had told me back in, in the year 2000, in 2010, that I'd be doing this, it's like, no way, um, different person entirely. So like, chill with that, just sort of roll with it and you'll find, and you'll find your way.
1: Yeah. I, I feel that way too, in my thirties compared to my twenties. And I, we have a couple of members of our team who are in their early twenties and, you know, I'm so excited for them and all the things they're going to learn and do. And just the, not knowing what your life is going to look like in your thirties or forties is part of what makes life great. You know, like if you knew exactly what was going to happen, or if it was exactly, if things just didn't change, then what a disappointment that would be. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've met a lot of
0: funny, like I've met some folks who, um, I went to high school with, or even like junior high school with, and like, you know, you have the two paths. You either can, like, grow up in suburbia, stay in suburbia, marry your high school sweetheart, have the 2.5 kids and the dog and the thicket fence, and that's the life you live. Um, And that gets really boring once you hit 35, 36, 37. Or, you know, you take the wild, uncontrollable road less traveled and just see where it puts you. Um, Who ends up having invariably more fun? <laughs> like... Uh, I would argue my side of the universe, where it's like, okay, sure, we're just gonna roll with this. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously this has been a super stressful, we've talked about mental health a lot. Like what in the world have you been doing for yourself? self care, running a successful startup in the middle of a pandemic that people all wanna use? Because like, honestly, like I think I originally found out about Icebreaker through a friend of mine who um, was in an Icebreaker event um through like a kind of VC startup accelerator program. And this was the thing they used to introduce everybody. And I was like, what? I'm like, okay, let me go digging. Um, and then that's how I found you guys. But like clearly you guys have been busy. So what
1: are you doing for your self-care? So the first half of the pandemic, I just worked, to be totally honest. It was, you know, maybe we would stop I would stop working on the weekends and try to do a little staycation somewhere safe. Get an Airbnb or something. But for the first five, six months of this, I mean hundred hour weeks, it felt like I just had to. I just had to. It felt, yeah, you know, I'm someone who when I feel stress or uncertainty, I have a real bias towards action. And it felt like this was the thing I could do to contribute to the world right now and the world needed it. And at some point, of course, that just doesn't work anymore. You really have to slow down and stop. And so since I guess August, I think, I've been really, really actively working on my self-care and reducing my stress levels. So my husband and I have started meditating. It's been doing about a month now, every morning, first thing when we wake up, we meditate for 15 minutes. We use the Calm app, which I just so highly recommend. Um, I started doing acupuncture. Uh, I do it twice a week, which is a lot. And uh, I've been doing it now for also about a month. And every single time I go, you're not supposed to put your phone on the table and you just lie there with the needles in you. And, uh, (laughs) and it is so hard for me to spend 30 minutes away from my phone. And that is that, but then it ends. And it's so, I just feel, I feel almost euphoric, like euphoric and calm. I feel so much better. Um, And I recognize that being able to do acupuncture is a complete privilege, um, but it's been really, 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 really helpful for me. And then I'm in therapy. I've been, you know, My mom's a therapist. My brother's a a therapist. I've been in therapy like quite literally since I was five. I had stomach pain. (laughs) They looked to try to figure out what was causing it. It wasn't physical. It was just anxiety. Like I've had anxiety since I was a kid. Um, And so, you know, being in therapy, even if you don't think you even need to talk about, there is just an hour to focus on naming it, naming your stress, naming your anxiety, naming your sadness naming your enthusiasm uh, has been really, really helpful for self-care. And then, you know, the final thing is one of the nice things about the pandemic has been, you don't need to do things you don't want to do. So like the social obligation to go to the birthday party, and yeah, like the person you, you know, maybe don't care for their friends all that much, all of that stuff. uh, It's been really nice to be intentional about the social interactions that I have. So whether that's going for a long walk with my husband and our dog, or, you know, quarantining for a week and a half so I can go see my parents who fortunately live an hour south, but are older and, you know, require us to be really safe. Um, Seeing close, close, close friends in a safe way, having really intentional social connection um, has been really helpful. And, and, you know, even with all those things, even with this uh, focus on reducing stress, I still am really stressed out and I still deal with anxiety and it's still hard to sleep. And, you know, I think that empathetic people and really any people, you, you feel the grief and the angst of the universe right now, and you know you just sort of have to accept that that's how it's going to be for a little while and, and, and forgive yourself and do your best. I think that when I, when I decided to stop being stressed about being stressed, that was the big revolutionary kind of decision for me. to stop being anxious about being anxious, to stop being sad about being sad and just be and feel, um, that has been what this year has taught me to do yeah just be like that's the that is the hardest thing of all and right there with you on that
0: that's like it's so hard but like once you are like oh wait okay i'm just going to feel my feelings there yeah. we go yeah uh that's awesome and fantastic because i think people again like i'm all about please go to therapy everyone do it whatever that might look like to you so that's group therapy that's a coach that's a therapist talk with someone who's not a family member or a friend Right. Uh, I think that's so key, especially right now, because it's you need a disinterested third party who's not going to have a bias towards a certain outcome, um, but only wants to look up for your about be- your about be- your good well-being. So, I thank you so much for sharing that. Um, oh. And last but not least, question because I could keep chatting with you for quite a while. Um, do you have a give and or an ask of the audience?
1: This is sort of a give and sort of an ask, but. Um... You know, the, it feels like it's been a long time since Saturday when the election was called for Joe Biden, but I want to sort of encourage everyone listening to remember that moment and that joy that you felt. And then look back at all the things that you did over the last four years, whether it was you showed up at the Women's March in 2017, or you showed up at a Black Lives Matter protest this year, or you donated $5 to a candidate, or you called an elected official to hold them accountable or you registered to vote for the first time, or you voted for the first time, or you voted for the hundredth time, or you uh, made phone calls into a battleground state, like whatever it is that you did, you definitely did something over the last four years. And you are the reason, and the collective you, all of us are the reason that we felt that joy and that hope on Saturday. And I just wanna both ask and give that reminder because we are so powerful our time, our activism, our organizing, it matters. And I hope that we feel proud of ourselves for what we were able to accomplish together. And that we let that pride and that joy and that feeling of empowerment never leave. And that we continue to give those $5 to that campaign. And we continue to march and we need to march and protest when we need to protest and vote every single damn time. Uh, because if we don't, we lose control of building the future that we all want. So. I just want to remind everyone of how powerful we all are and encourage everyone to really take note, write yourself a letter of what the things that you did over the last four years, um, because we're going to have to keep doing all of that and more.
0: Awesome. Uh, that's a great one. Uh, and so super job timely, um, because we absolutely need to do this. Like, this is not a, a period of like, like take all that awesome joy that we all fell inside with the pots and pans and like the random screaming and cheering, um, and hold on to that. So, cause not every day is going to be awesome going mm-hmm. forward. So it's so important to remember that joy and then turn that joy into more action. Cause so much work to do for us to get to a brighter day uh lisa it was such a delight having you on the show We could just keep on chatting Um, thank you so
1: very much thank you for having me yeah this is you know i feel like we talked about a lot more than i expected to talk about but i really learned so much from you over the course of the last hour so thank you for sharing your experience and your thoughts Awesome. Thanks so much. And,
0: and I encourage you all to check out Icebreaker Video. I will throw in the links in uh, the show notes so you can find and uh, use, use the platform, it, which is phenomenal. Like I said, even if you want to do this among just with a bunch of friends you'll, and you can set some interesting questions, you'll you'll get to ask each other really thing, fun things you probably didn't even know about your friends you've known for 20 years. Um, so I encourage you all to check it out. And that is our show.